Blog Talk Radio. It's Sunday evening, and welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Your hosts for tonight's show are Robert Brining and Jeremy Dunn. They'll be taking your calls and speaking on the topic of the week. You're encouraged to call in and share some of your life experiences with us. The number to call is 347-215-9442. That number again, 347-215-9442. Welcome to Pause I Am Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Pause I Am Radio. I am your host, Robert Brining, joined this evening by Jeremy Dunn. Jeremy, how are you? I'm Peachy. Peachy? Peachy Keen. Peachy, you did a great job last week. I loved finally getting to hear your story. How did oh, well, you feel? Oh, thank you. It was fun to be, it was fun to, to kind of be on and, 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 and be the guest. It was kind of fun just to be in the hot seat. Yeah, right, the hot seat. I like that. The hot seat. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Oh, goodness. So, so, how was your week? My week has been good. Uh, the quitting smoking is is working. Um, I, I haven't quit completely, but I am least into the single digits of the amount of cigarettes that I smoke. Um, single and digits? So that means nine? No, no. There's been days with three and four. Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, it's good. We're not smoking in the house, so that kind of really helps. Yes, I, I had to read your um, Facebook message a couple of times there because it said smoking in the outhouse. Oh, did it? Yeah, instead <laughs> of our house. So once I realized you were not smoking in an outhouse and that you had indoor plumbing, I was okay with that. Oh, that's so funny. Somebody posted on that, too. When did you get an outhouse? And I didn't realize what they were talking about. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yes. Oh, my. Yes. But yeah, other, so, other than that, life is good so far. Excellent. So did you guys plan a, a wedding date yet? No, not yet. Not yet. Come on. No, no. Get we're on. waiting for the right time. You know, it costs money. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you. After and the show, I mean, I'll tell you how much it costs. <laughs> and, it's, and it's tax season, so. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, so, you know. But it, we will. We will. Okay. When it's meant to be, it'll happen. It'll happen. All right. Other than that, how are you? How was your week? My week was actually pretty good. It was busy as all heck. Um, just lots going on around here. Just tons of things happening. Uh, let's see. The AIDS Walk that uh, Paz I Am is sponsoring is on April 9th. And um, so I'll be there giving some, you know, supporting Paz I Am and, and being there for Paz I Am and being there for both Jack and Rob, Robert. So it's all about me. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And they are thrilled to have the sponsorship. So cool. thrilled. Thrilled. <laughs> yeah. Thrilled. Yeah, I can't wait. So, it's, it's April 9th. It's down in Gaston County, and it's going to be a beautiful day. And Oh, and I think that's the day that I'm going to go see um, Avenue Q, too. And what is that? <gasps> Avenue Q, full full frontal puppetry. It's great. Oh. <laughs> yes, great. They have great songs like If You Were Gay and um, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. Um, I mean, it goes on. And it's puppets. It's Sesame Street-style puppets. Interesting. And and I can't wait to see it. Uh, last night, uh, Mark and I went and saw Young Frankenstein. How was it? Great show. Great show. Just just so you know, um, I'm a huge Young Frankenstein fan anyway, and um, just to see it live on stage as a musical is, is hysterical. But I, I I I think I laughed so hard I even peed a little. <laughs> I wet my seat. Of course you did. <laughs> and then I blamed it on the old lady next to me. <laughs> and that wasn't Mark. There was another old lady there. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Oh, goodness. But, um, but yeah, so, so uh, you know, there's a ton of things getting kicked up, getting started around here. There's uh, the April 9th is the House of Mercy AIDS block, which I'll be there and be at. 
And then um, after that in May, I think it's May 11th, which I'm actually going to, no, May 21st? Uh, anyway, it's the Regional AIDS Interfaith Network, RAIN. It's their AIDS block. And then in June, <laughs> we have a 5K run for um, that's going to benefit the Carolinas Care Partnership. You're going to run? So, what, yes, it's, am I going to run? Yeah. Um, it's only a 5K, so I might. That's just five miles. Yeah, so, but, yeah, so I'll put my running shoes on. It's in the morning. Yeah, I, w- I would just do the walk, and I'd be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing all three of these events. Good for you. Making money. That's great. Bringing money in, getting the word out, all that jazz. But, uh, good. yeah, so so it's kind of exciting stuff. That's that's all happening. It's it's happening now, and, uh, but... Anywho, so what's going on in your world? Anything fun, um, exciting? Well, well, last week, you know, I, I, I spoke about, um, you know, on the show a little bit before you came on about the conference, the Positive Living Conference in Fort Walton Beach. And, you know, I just kind of want to mention that, you know, it's a, a fabulous um, conference. And it's, it, I had a couple moments there where I, I really, like, I don't know, I had this over overwhelming feeling of, like, I don't know, like sense of just calm and just like it was an interesting, just to be in a room with 400 and something people and every one of them being HIV positive just kind of sets the mood and allows you to just like kind of like bring your walls down and just be yourself and not have like, you know what I mean, like this subconscious thing that you're thinking about of everybody's going to be concerned about it. It's just the more relaxed this conference that I've been to. And people reached out, and it's just such an amazing conference. I actually have a blog I'm about to put up um, about the whole conference, and I, um, you know, I, I'm just kind of finalizing that. I want to actually add my presentation because I did a presentation there, and I just want to again thanks Robin and, and Butch for putting the conference together. And to go to AIDSOasis.org um, and check it out. Um, there's gonna, I'm sure it'll be one next year. It's just beautiful, and it's just a, a magical moment. You can read it all in my blog. Um, we do have. Um, that is not our guest. I don't oh, think. okay. <laughs> I thought it was too in the switchboard, but um, it was just—it was just an amazing moment to be like surrounded by all those people and have that one thing in common. And you know, there was a lot of different moments during the co- conference that really touched me. Like there was a memorial that they did on um, the beach for an activist that had passed away, and it was just very touching and a very emotional time to stand in a circle with everybody and just you know, spread the ashes of, of, you know, this gentleman, Randy, who did so much work, you know, there, you know, in Florida and was recognized by the Obama administration and all this. And, he, you know, it was just an amazing moment to be a part of, and I was just glad I could be there. So for me, you know, I recommend it to anybody. If you're going to go to any conference, this is one where it's really about people living with HIV and they're there. A lot of the other ones usually are, you know, subjected to a certain kind of theme or, Thing. Um, so this one is just really about bringing people with HIV together. And it was great. I met a lot of great friends. And actually, our guest is in the queue. So I want to go ahead and tell you a little bit about our guest, uh, Lorraine Willenberg. And she is from California. And she will be coming on and sharing parts of her story and then also speaking about a subject that some of you may not be familiar with. And I have to admit, I am somebody who is really not familiar with HIV controllers and long-term non-progressors, and she's going to come on and kind of explain it to us and break it down um, in, 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 in real simple, hopefully, English that we all can understand, and if you have questions, you can call in and ask about it, you know, when we get to that point, but this is going to be something that's going to be a learning experience, I know, for me, and it may be for some of you, so, um, you know, I think it would be interesting, so please help me um, welcome Lorraine Willenberg. Lorraine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, anytime. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you doing? How is everybody? Happy spring. I know. Today's the first day of spring. Yay! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So how are you today? Good? I'm good, honey. I'm being quiet. We've had a rainy day, uh, actually a rainy weekend. We had really high winds blow through Sacramento, lost a lot of trees, unfortunately. But it's calmed down today, and uh, hopefully we're going to have more spring-like weather. Um, they said, I think, on Wednesday, Thursday. 
so we'll see. But things are blooming, and I don't know about for you back there on the East Coast or wherever our uh, listeners all are, but um, hopefully soon you'll all be seeing daffodils. Oh, the daffodils have been out for now a couple of weeks here in Charlotte. Wonderful. Yeah, daffodils, tulips, all of them. They're so pretty. They are. They are. I, I stop and I sniff, and then I got bit by a bee, and then I don't sniff anymore. Owie. Yeah, right on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at you, Jeremy. Yes, yeah, sure. no. you got bit. You got bit by a bee or something? No, I'm kidding. I didn't because I know I know well enough not to stick my nose in some flower I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, so Lillian, tell us a little bit about. Um, you know, let's start off with when you were diagnosed. Um, you know, it was 1992, if I'm correct, right? Yes. Yes, July okay. of Okay, and tell us what your life was like at that time. Well, I was um, in my, <clears throat> excuse me, my eighth year of uh, operating my own uh, landscape maintenance and uh, design build company. I had uh, probably 75 different uh, clients under contract. Um, I had nine individuals on a payroll. Uh, this was a company that I started in 1984. And we were moving along pretty well. In fact, I was actually getting ready to expand the fleet of trucks that I that I owned, and we were getting ready to expand into full-bore landscape installation, which uh, included, you know, from the ground up, I mean, you know, pulling in the irrigation trench trenchers and subcontractors. And I was, I had been a designer um, for many, many years and um, would produce plans like a landscape architect would, although I did not have the landscape architecture degree. But I had a natural talent for drawing, and I had a very, very deep love of plants. And one thing led to another, <clears throat> excuse me, and I eventually did get my state uh, contractor's license out here in California. And um, so business was good. Um, I just wanted to give everyone kind of a, a point of reference um, about uh, HIV, uh, the epidemic in that year, in 1992. Um, <clears throat> it was actually four years before the viral load assay was actually marketed and used in the clinical setting to measure viral loads. And so providers, medical providers, uh, obviously had uh, been tracking, you know, uh, focused completely on CD4 counts as a way to measure the progression of um, HIV infection. Also, it was four years before uh, HIV medications uh, hit the market, and I'm talking about the drug cocktails. Um, obviously, many of you are familiar with um, interferon and AZT, uh, highly experimental and toxic drugs that were used from the early 80s through uh, 1996 <clears throat> before the antiretroviral medications were uh, successful or marketed and then uh, realized to be very successful in uh, saving people, snatching them back from the brink of death. Um, the time of death from uh, diagnosis to AIDS at this point in time in 1992 was six months or less. Um, also, it was three years before the National Institutes of Health actually um, instituted their very first long-term non-progressor study. Um, I was 38 years old when I seroconverted, and uh, today I'm three weeks away from my 57th birthday. So July this year will actually mark my 19th anniversary um, with being infected with HIV. Oh, I, also wow. wanted, I also wanted to let everyone know that um, I'm originally from Los Angeles, but I had uh, left there very young. I was about 18, and I was kind of unhappy with... Uh, Oh, I was a student at UCLA and Nixon bombed Cambodia <clears throat> that fall, and um, there were um, incredibly intense um, protests and demonstrations on campus 
um, I decided to go visit relatives in Minnesota. And actually, within two months, uh, being in Minneapolis, I love the people and my environment so well that I decided to completely relocate from Los Angeles to Minneapolis when I was 18. Um, but if we fast-forwarded to 1982, I pretty much got tired of the Minnesota winters <laughs> and wanted to come back home to California. And that's when I wound up living in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And I lived in a very small town called Placerville, which was about 25,000 people. Um, it's the original gold rush uh, it, actually, Placerville was called originally Old Hangtown, and the reason it got that name is because there was a huge oak tree in the center of town where um, bad people would be hung uh, from the tree. And so um, it was a very redneck town, and I was a highly respected business person by the time I was diagnosed with HIV. I also want to mention that um, although the CDC doesn't, um, hasn't yet published uh, because I think they don't have uh, the correct numbers, but I was over on uh, the KFF.org, uh, the Henry Kaiser Foundation uh, website earlier today, I was interested in how many people actually died uh, from HIV AIDS in 1992. Well, they didn't have that year, but they did have 1994 statistics. And there were 42,000 people in the U.S. who had lost their lives to AIDS. Um, in 1992, though, I thought it was interesting. They did have statistics about HIV-positive women in the U.S., and there were 80,000 of us in that year. Um, Today, if you want to compare those numbers, women, there's 280,000 uh, estimated uh, in the U.S. women who are infected with HIV as of 2009. Wow. So a lot, a lot of people are probably really interested in, in what my first reaction was perhaps when I yeah. did decide to go um, get tested. One of the reasons I did decide to go get tested, and it wasn't my first first time getting tested, actually. Um, I had tested negative in 1988, 1989. I went in for a yearly uh, HIV test. I uh, suffered the loss of many good friends uh, to AIDS and, and was trying to be as proactive. You know, I, I was single um, at the time uh, during those years, and, uh, but I did date. Uh, not a lot of gentlemen, but I did. Uh, I was sexually active, and um, so I. <clears throat> you like to mingle. Yes, and uh, you know, have have some fun, and uh, you know, I had some long-term relationships with uh, gentlemen, but um, I I actually came down in uh, late spring 1992 with a a desperate flu. Um, it was about two weeks in length, and I remember being just terribly, terribly sick, which was very uncommon for me. I usually never caught the flu, um, very seldom even had a cold, and I'm talking about my entire life. And I remember needing to call some girlfriends uh, to come to my home and take care of me. Uh, during the seroconversion flu, um, I would say about a month after that, I had a dream that I was HIV positive. And the very next day, I called the um, El Dorado County uh, local public health department, <clears throat> and I scheduled uh, to go in for an HIV test. And uh, the first test actually came back what's called indeterminate. And you have to remember, there's a very small town... Uh, clinic, uh, public health department, uh, they were completely bewildered by this initial um, indeterminate uh, result. So they asked me to come back and, and do another blood draw. This time they sent the uh, blood sample to the state labs in Berkeley, California, and I had to wait two weeks uh, to get those results. And when they called me... Um, they asked me to come in, 
they they at the time and I and I hope they don't do this today although I've heard stories that they might um public health departments would never give you your diagnosis over the phone and so I went back in and the public health nurse indeed confirmed that I had uh, tested positive by that time they were able to to notice uh on the western blot that the uh uh, that I had built up antibodies against HIV. Um, they weren't actually calling it HIV-1 at that time either. They were calling it HTLV-2. And I remember that she handed me a sheaf of printed papers, printed documents, and said, well, you know, take that home and read it. But my first reaction was that it was very difficult to have that dream confirmed I think I already knew. Um, and then my second reaction was that I was quite stunned by her rather callous remark that, well, she said, you know, this virus is going to kill you and we recommend that you tie up all of your loose ends because you'll probably be dead within six months. Hmm. Wow. Um, the next emotion that I remember feeling was that I was immediately angry, not only at my fiancé, or should I say my ex-fiancé, we had broken up about three months before July, Um, I was quite disappointed and angry at myself for having known better. And I must say that I kind of pulled, I kind of made my world very small. Um, You have to know that my business was extremely busy at that time. I felt uh, very responsible for my nine employees, you know, to keep their paychecks rolling in. And so I really had to immediately bury a lot of um, this tumultuous uh, emotions that I was experiencing, and I didn't immediately disclose to my my family members or my close friends. Um, I remember having a very a, a very difficult time leaving my house for a couple of weeks. Um, but I'm a very strong person. I'm a cancer survivor. I had been diagnosed with stage 5 cervical cancer about 12 years before, and um, I was very lucky that I didn't have to go through radiation therapy or chemotherapy. They essentially, I went through, um, I think it was an outpatient procedure, surprisingly enough, where they went in and they actually froze the area. They cut out about two-thirds of my cervix, um, which obviously would eventually mean that I was never able to support a pregnancy. But it saved my life. And for the next five years, I had gone through quarterly pap tests and uh, uh they you know they said that you are in remission you know we can't find any any last vestiges of of the cancerous tumors so i felt very blessed by that but then i also as i got my oh i pulled myself together uh after this hiv diagnosis um what i started to do was access the volunteer heart hotline at Project Inform out here in San Francisco. And I'll tell you, folks, I think I probably burnt out a couple of phones because I called them all the time for the first three months. You know, So this, this expanded into, like, the fall. But the wonder, wonderful people who staffed that line and still do staff that line um, – and I do have a phone number to share with you in case some of our listeners um, would like to speak to um, that hotline. Um, they did two things for me that was just um, very supportive, besides listening to a very frightened and isolated woman uh, in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Um, they referred me to my physician, 
here in Sacramento, who was a Stanford-educated, um, a wonderful man uh, who was very educated about HIV. And also, they referred me to two books. And the first one was And the Band Played On by uh, Randy Schultz, who was actually a San Francisco journalist, and uh, Randy took five years and really wrote what I think remains one of the most amazing historical books about the AIDS epidemic. Um, And I would highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't read the book. You can watch the film but I highly, I, I think that the, I would highly recommend that you read the book if you're interested in the history of the epidemic. Randy Schill, well, we lost. I, him. I totally, I totally, uh, I totally um, have you know seen the film, and I, I, I always want to buy the book, but it's one of those books that looks like an encyclopedia, so it scares yeah. me. Yeah, it really is. I I reread it a couple years ago, yeah, and I just tagged the the heck out of it. I had my little posty notes all over it, and it looks rather alive right now. Uh, But but I think it's really important, especially for um, any and all of you who have been recently diagnosed and who are members of the younger generation coming up and following those of us who you know, have, have have really lived, you know, 20, 30 years with this virus. Um, it's, it's quite an eye-opener. And, and reading that book, Robert, really, I don't know, it kind of gave me this real strength and sense of purpose. And the second book was um, The Invisible Epidemic by Gina Correra. And and The Invisible Epidemic is the book written about uh, women, women in the epidemic. And and so reading those two books in 1992, I think, really helped me to, um, it got me on the path of education. Somebody's calling in on my line. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to answer it. Um, I was afraid that might happen. Um I would highly recommend those two titles for being very empowering, um, and and just so, be, so. The two titles were one was and the band played on, and the other one was the invisible epidemic. Yeah. Um, can you just back up a little bit and tell us a little bit about? You said uh, after you were diagnosed, you didn't you know run and 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 tell your family. How long did it take for you to tell your family, and what was their reaction? Um, I come from a very strong family of women. Um, it only took me about a month, you know, and, and unfortunately they're living in different cities, so I couldn't, you know, speak to them face-to-face. Um, I had the business to keep going, and, and you know, although I <sighs> would have preferred that I was able to go down there and get some hugs from my sisters and my mom, um that didn't happen. So their reactions were very supportive, although they were very concerned. I mean, you know, they were reading the newspapers, too, and, and they knew that an HIV diagnosis at, at that point of time uh, was very scary. And yes. um, uh, they were they stayed in, in real close touch with me. Um, my mom um, took it the hardest, you know, because I was her baby, and... But she also knew that um, all of us have been incredibly healthy throughout our lives. And uh, my mom and I talked a lot, actually, about my surviving cancer. And I told Mm -hmm. her that I felt that it was kind of a precursor. Uh, Maybe it was a little bit prophetic way back then for me to even bring that up to her. Um, but, But I shared information with them. Um, One of my sisters, you know, uh, subscribed to Paws Magazine for me in 1994. Um, I was one of the original subscribers to that wonderful magazine. And I just have always um, felt very supported and encouraged by my family. The friends were a harder adventure. Um, Mm -hmm. People were scared. You know, and when I said that um, I had lost many friends, that I'd stood at the gravesite 
sides of many friends that I'd lost to AIDS, um, so too did some of my best friends. And and that was tough. Um, but over the years, as I learned more about it, and then my doctor was kind of introducing me uh, to the terminology, long-term non-progressor, that there's, you know, a, a small group of us that were being uh, found who uh, seemed to keep the virus at bay. Um, I would, you know, share this information with my close circle of friends, and all of us were plant people or doing cool things. You know, we'd hike the Pacific Trail and the Sierras and, you know, outdoorsmen and women. And um, I remember having, you know, a lot of barbecues at one friend's home, and um, it was a very interesting time. Um, they had a lot of questions. Uh, they they became very interested in um, what was being learned. And, you know, I, I think that it was um, okay. But I it made me feel very different from most, uh, mainly because there weren't any support groups for women. Um, I was kind of tucked underneath the wings, the protective wings of... Uh, quite a few wonderful gay gentlemen that were very good friends of mine. Um, I attribute to them uh, my reduction of fear. And uh, within three years, I was actually very involved in the Ryan White Consortium and actually became chairperson of um, that vicinity's uh, Ryan White Planning Council, as they're better known now. And um, that was Although I wasn't out publicly, I felt that it was a really important way for me to try and uh, give back. It became very important to me to give back, as I remembered my good friends losing their battle. And uh, I've actually never stopped being involved, but eventually my business really took a lot of my focus. And um, obviously it was the way I was making my living, and it wasn't until 2004 when I enrolled in my very first clinical research trial um, in October of 2004 that my life started changing in a very, very big way. And I realized... Lorraine, yeah. Lorraine one second. We have to take a real quick, quick, short sure. break. And when we come back, we can talk about sure. um, you know, all the things that you're about to lead into about how your life changed because I Great. think that's really important. So Great. let's take this really quick break and we'll be right back. Okay. I contracted a preventable disease from a guy that looks good and smells good but never mentioned that he had HIV. But he is not to blame. I should have loved myself enough to protect myself. But through it all, I found self-love and it's the greatest thing I ever felt. I was never less than or equal to AIDS but always greater. I just realized that not caring for myself or my body, I was my biggest hater. I am author of the Naked Truth, Marvin Brown, and I am greater than AIDS. And you can find more information on greater than eggs at greater than dot org. Jeremy, are you there? I'm here. All right, so we can come on and and Lorraine, are you there with us too? I'm here, yes. All right. Wahoo. So so Lorraine, before we went into break, I love that. Before we went to break, you were getting ready to <laughs> I, like that. <laughs> I know it. it makes it sound so big and official. I love that. Before we went to break. Um, you were getting ready to talk about um, how your life changed by getting into some of these um, studies and working with the Ryan White Consortium. Mm-hmm. So let's let's start there. Okay. Um, my doctor always knew from the very first CD4 test that there was something very different. Um, I had uh, measured well over 1,500 CD4s, that very first test, but then about three months later, it skyrocketed up to almost 1,900. And by the time the viral load assays um, were available to clinicians, um, I had uh, this undetectable uh, viral load. And indeed, it's true, I have never registered one, a copy. I've always been undetectable all of these many years. And the, the, the ratio between the CD4s and the CD8s 
uh, historically has always been between 47 and 62 percent. And um, I must say that on three different occasions, different um, clinical researchers have registered uh, CD4 counts in me over 2,200. Um, it doesn't always stay that high, but I very seldom go below uh, 1,100. They might bounce, but I think that the bounces happen when I'm... I had a kidney stone, for example, in 2002, and that was no fun. And then I was diagnosed with TB in uh, 2007, and I registered an 1,100 CD4 count. So, but it always bounces back, and, and so I'm one of those controllers that has... Um, you know, extremely high CD4 count and extremely high CD8 count and undetectable viral load. But so does, does that make you a, an elite controller? Or yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and actually, um, there are two major and different categories, uh, phenotypes, if you will, uh, there was some a great deal of confusion from about 2004 until just about a year ago. Um, there was a study published by uh, the Natural. Um, there's a there's a study called Natural History Study, but they've realized that um, long-term non-progressors and HIV controllers are two separate groups, although they overlap. And I just wanted to put it out there that don't don't get too hung up on the um, semantics of the definitions of these categories, folks, because there's more being discovered about these so-called mechanisms of control that we have, and nothing is really set in stone. We have to understand that as human beings, our immune systems are incredible uh, incredible systems, and HIV, the virus itself, has challenged our HIV research community um, like no other parasite, bacteria, or um, virus has ever challenged them. And um, so just, you know, if you're hearing these numbers or these definitions, please don't think that it infers that you might not ever be or you never will be, okay? I'm just going to put that caveat out there. But for all practical purposes, the HIV controller group, of which about 1,700 of us have been identified and were enrolled in the major study in Boston conducted by Dr. Bruce Walker, um, elite controllers are the first category, and we're defined by the ability to spontaneously suppress HIV below the limits of detection. So, so that particular study focuses on the viral load and not necessarily the CD4s or the CD8s. And the Boston study has also found that um, this natural control is established very soon after infection but it happens in less than 1% of all HIV-positive people. So there's something different going on. Um, there are probably 20 to 30 different immune or genetic mechanisms that they think might be going on. Um, certainly I, I'm not going to list all those 20 or 30 tonight, but recently at the scientific conference, um, called CROI, which is the Conference for Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections. It's a highly respected conference that happens on a yearly basis, usually every February. And this February, it, it took place in Boston. Uh, I wasn't able to go, unfortunately, but um, there was a paper produced by Dr. Walker's study that said that even within the elite controller category of which there's about 513 of us um, that donate to their study, they put out an abstract that wherein they were really focusing in on the mechanism of how our CD4s uh, inhibit infection by HIV into those cells, 
and they have uh, they put out in this abstract their conclusionary statement was that there's a very small subset of elite controllers with higher CD4 counts that show an immune response against HIV very similar to HIV-negative persons. I think it's a very extraordinary statement. I can't wait to read the full text of that paper. Unfortunately, how science works is I have to wait about six months for uh, the paper to be available to laypersons. You know, I'm not a scientist, and neither will I um, afford the 35 or $50 charge per paper. You know, it's really an interesting uh, arena how our science works. Now, the second category in the HIV controller category is called viremic, just means virus, uh, viremic controller, and these individuals will measure a viral load up to about 2,000, and they'll stay there. They'll never go over that. And they represent um, the larger uh, group, the larger participant group in the Boston study, and there's about there's about 1,000 viremic controllers in that study. So there you have like the two major categories and their differences, and then I'll, I'll just say that long-term non-progressors, and when you think about that phrase, long-term is exactly what they mean, and that is 10 years or more, HIV positive, and they're differentiated from elite controllers by a more stable CD4 count and significantly lower viral loads. Namely, several of us who um, participate in the National Institute of Health Study for Long-Term Non-Progressors, they purchased about two years ago a viral load assay machine that is able to, to measure down to 0.25 copies of the virus per milliliter. Wow. And milliliter, guys, guys and gals, merely denotes about um, five, <clears throat> excuse me, five teaspoons of blood, okay, when you hear that term, milliliter. So, so right away, you know, there's, there's quite a few long-term non-progressors back in Bethesda in that study, and I'm one who register less than one copy of the virus per milliliter. And um, it's quite extraordinary. And I did hear that our local clinic here in Sacramento called the CARES Clinic has just recently purchased one of those ultra-sensitive assay machines. So it's very extraordinary, isn't it, for them to be able to measure down to 0.25 of a copy of the virus in, in the host. Yeah, it's quite it's, extraordinary. It really is when you can get to that, when you can get that range of sensitivity. It's, it's especially when you look back from where it all started when there wasn't a test, yeah. you know, way back when. And it was it just, it's amazing the, mm -hmm. the progress that, that we've made. So uh, uh, the study that you're involved with, is this also, um, because I, I know there's a, uh, another one out there, the International HIV Controller Study. That's the Boston study. That's the formal okay. name of the study I'm speaking of. And, yeah. and these studies, by the way, um, Bruce Walker was rather, excuse me, Dr. Walker was rather the, um, the visionary uh, to spearhead an international uh, cooperative, you know, cooperative effort. I think he's up to like 300 different uh, cooperators. Um, I'm so happy to say that um, at the CROI conference, and, you know, by this time I track any and all presentations that have to do with uh, both these, you know, the controllers and the long-term non-progressor groups, um, and I've done so, you know, diligently for about six years now. But 18 different countries chimed in with abstracts. 18 different countries are now actually producing um, findings. You know, they have their own particular um, groups. And a study, by the way, is called a cohort. And so uh, Sweden, uh, Denmark, uh, Germany has a very strong um, group of scientists that study us. Uh, Spain, 
um, Italy. It's happening all over. Uh, India just implemented their first LTNP study in November. And so more, more and more, as more of us, as more information about the fact that we are out there becomes uh, understood and recognized, uh, the awareness has definitely increased in the time I've been doing this work. Um, more of us are being identified, which means that if you have more people in in the scientific community, you know, scrutinizing us, our immune systems, our genetic makeup, I believe that it's going to equate to expediting the discovery. And why is that interesting, you guys? This is what makes me tick. Because I believe that as soon as they know more about what makes us defend against this incredibly bad guy, this virus, the sooner they're going to be able to translate this into perhaps a immune-based therapy, a stem cell, a, you know, modified therapy, a genetically modified therapy, even, in fact, a genetically modified HIV virus, okay, we're talking about the virus, and translate that to those of you who aren't controllers or LTNPs. This is what my message is, is that I have dedicated my life to not only contributing to these studies, as as have 1,700 people that I know of, uh, controllers, who go to these studies, who aphorese, we, we get attached to a machine that's very similar to a kidney dialysis machine. Some, depending on you know the Boston study and NIH, it might be a single needle in one arm, it might be needles in both arms. The machine extracts out the, the whole blood, separates the red from the white cells. The white cells, guys, are the infection-fighting lymphocyte cells, and that's what they study. I'm happy to do it. Um, others of us uh, do sigmoidoscopies or colonoscopies or even endoscopies so that other researchers who are looking at the tissues in our intestines, upper and lower intestines, we donate tissue samples from our intestines so that they can do their own particular research on what's going on in those tissues and controllers and LTNPs. And I think about all of you whenever I'm attached to these machines or if I'm undergoing a colonoscopy. I've done many. I don't really speak publicly about all that. I kind of do it. You know, it's a very personal right. thing, but I, but I think about 40 million people in the world when I undergo these procedures, and I know that my compadres, my what I call my tribe, my cousins of control, we all feel the same. We we can't wait for the day that perhaps a therapeutic vaccine is available to all, and we can't wait for the day that we can celebrate that. Um, people don't have to rely on a lifetime of medications that might eventually prove to be highly toxic to you. Um, This is my prayer. This is what fuels me to contribute to 13 clinical research studies, not just two. And I'll do this until I'm not needed anymore. And I know that my, my compadres also feel the same. And it's all. Well, I, you know, I'm reading some of the messages that I'm reading in the chat room on Pause I Am and, and messages on Twitter, and people, you know, are saying that you know your participation could really help evolve to a cure one day, and and doing things like that, and bringing it to the forefront because a lot of people don't know of, about this, I know. about what controllers are. So I think it's important that you know the awareness is, and I'm glad that we were able to have you come on and, yeah. and to talk about it. But I do want to open the phone lines real quick. In case anybody has any questions, you guys can uh, reach us here at the show, uh, 347-215-9442. I know we have about 10 minutes left, so if you have any kind of a question or a comment you want to speak to us, please give us a call here at the show. We only have a few minutes left. Um, 
So you have to answer I've any noticed, questions. Yes, absolutely. I noticed that you also have a blog over at thebody.com. I have a blog over there as well. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about what people are going to be reading about when they go and visit your blog? Well, Bonnie Goldman, the um, the previous uh, editor of thebody.com, she and I met uh, in Toronto. I had actually joined Dr. Walker uh, for a press conference at the International AIDS Conference in Toronto, Canada, in August of 2006. Um, I was the first HIV. I guess you could call me the poster child for the HIV controller community. Um, I had just publicly disclosed about two months before that event, and Bonnie Goldman and I met there. And Bonnie bugged me for about two years to be a blogger. They they didn't have bloggers in 06 and 07, and I resisted her because I was busy creating the nonprofit called the Zephyr LTNP Foundation. But I'll never forget it. Um, she called me one afternoon and she says, you know, Lorene, you have a very valuable voice and people people need to know more about what this is all about. And, you know, she was right. And, and so I, when I have time, I update the blog and, and uh, I, think, I think the most highly viewed blog that I wrote was December 08, the first year. I think I started blogging finally for her the spring of 08. And uh, that's called uh, HIV controllers are linked to a functional cure for HIV. And I had several um, other HIV controllers who shared their thoughts about, um, you know, their lives and their status as a controller. And um, that's probably the single most important blog entry that I've done. Um, I'm a terrible blogger. I, I love to write, but time gets to be of the essence because I do have a nonprofit now, and you know our website's going to be three years old in June, and that takes a lot of energy, guys. And all of a sudden, the social um, you know network sites have exploded, and I'm a one-woman office, and <laughs> you know, and uh, so I juggle many hats, but. I'm always available. People can always reach me uh, either by phone or by writing to me through our Contact Us link on the Zephyr website. And um, I travel. I speak in public. uh, uh, But mainly um, I'm just so gratified that uh, individuals like yourself and, and the body and PAWS and many others that I'm forgetting to mention have been so supportive of this walk of mine and have tried to help me, uh, you know, offer me a platform from which to speak uh, and give this message of hope, um, because I do think that my community uh, does represent uh, a beacon of hope. And so I welcome anybody who has any questions. And yes, we actually have a caller um, on the line right now. So let me bring a- caller area code three four seven. Welcome to the show. Who's this? Hello, you talking to me? Yeah, I'm yes, talking, we're talking to you. To you. <laughs> Hi, Lorraine, it's Barbara. You know, I thought I recognized you, dear. I'm so glad you've joined us tonight. How are you? Fine. I, I, I'm just calling to lend my support. I'm a controller. I'm an HIV controller. Ah, oh, thank you, Barbara. And I don't really know what to say. I've, I've never really participated in a talk show before. It's my first time. <laughs> You're welcome. It's our first time, too. <laughs> well, here I am. I'm a controller. Um, I was diagnosed in 1992, February 22nd of 1992, and I also thought I had six months. I figured I had about six to eight months to live. Um, my CD4 has never gone below 900. It's usually about 1100. It is now 1100. I've always, when they started that test, that detectable test, it's always been undetectable. It is now undetectable. And I just thank God. And I participate in the studies. And I'm like Lorraine. When I participate in the studies, I think of all the people who may be sick or who may get sick. I have three daughters, by the way. And I believe that young black women are the major cause of death in young black women between 25 and maybe 50. Is HIV? Yes. 
Mm. Is that accurate? It's pretty darn close, honey. It's not a good number. And all three of my daughters are in that age group. Oh. Well, one of them is 23, but, you know, close enough, you know. So, you know, the thought of, of something I can do to help find a cure yeah. is really important. As I have to tell you, it, it's, you know, like Barbara, I have met just the most amazing people on this journey. I can't even tell you, and it's just such a joy to hear your voice, Barbara. Barbara wrote to me, actually, because um. Goldman, I think, put us together, Barbara, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's just, she has such a wonderful spirit, and I didn't hear her voice. I heard her voice the first time on the phone about a month ago, and um, it made me cry. Uh, you know, a lot of us are out there. Uh, one of the reasons I created Zephyr was because there, we aren't able to be introduced when we're, um, you know, donating to these studies. And in fact, we could be sitting in the same lobby and due to HIPAA regulations, privacy law, we are not introduced. I mean, you know, these researchers could lose their jobs if they introduce us, and we respect that. But what the Zephyr's done then is to create a, a private forum, and we have 66 HIV controllers that are members from all over the world. And, Barbara, I want to let you know that, and, and all the listeners, that the um, the gender split in the HIV controller community it's about 26% are women and, and 73% are men. And I'm happy to say that the studies are starting to reflect transgender participants in their data, finally. Right. So now these people can contact you uh, through your website, go through uh, yeah. the ZephyrFoundation.org? Yes. Mm-hmm. At any time. That's a, okay. Um, and they can, can they search for you? Is there also a Facebook page for the the foundation as well, and Twitter and yep. all that, they can look you Yep, we do, and, and if you pull up the Zephyr Foundation website, uh, there are direct links to our foundation um, page on Facebook and also to our Twitter feed. Um, I was very busy on both uh, during CROI, and I, I try to translate this complex science into understandable English. I, I hope that people, um, you know, have a better view uh, tonight, but there's articles there that folks can read, and you know they can always Google uh, HIV controllers or any of the terms I've used tonight. And I just want to tell you, from the perspective of uh, a person who has gotten to know some of these dedicated scientists, you know, they will not give up. I've actually had Bruce Walker tell me he is not going to retire until he's found the answer, okay? And and they do care. They're they're amazing. Um they do not sit in their ivory towers. Um they are uh desperate to figure this thing out and I believe they will. Well there you have it. Well thank you for, for joining us for this hour. Um it was very educational and, and you know I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it all again just so I get it all because it, it's something I need to really learn about. Thank you, honey, and, and Jeremy, it's just such a pleasure to hear your voice. We go all the way back to acemed.com. <laughs> when you called me Auntie Zephy the other day, uh, it just, that made me cry, too. You know, thank you, honey. I love you all. Auntie Zephy. It's, okay. it's like, yay, she's awesome, yay. <laughs> still, still out here, you know, still doing the thing, honey. That's right. God bless you all. All right, bless thank you, too. You thank you for calling man. in. Thanks for being with us tonight. Yes, and you can find more information on her again, ZephyrFoundation.org. So we are, you know, we got like a, a couple minutes left. I just want to remind everybody that next week uh, we will be speaking with uh, the gentleman by the name of Danny Logan. He was the HIV positive actor who was on ABC's or CBS, whatever it was. What would you do? Um, and um, you know, he played the scenario where he was being discriminated against as somebody living with HIV. Um, whether it was working at the diner or as a customer at the diner. Um, if you log on um, to the Positive Network, there's links there to watch the video, and um, he's going to come on and talk about what that experience was like and, and you know, what it's like to, to be him um, in the world today. So other than that, Jeremy, I, had, I thought it was a great show. That was wonderful. She's a sweetheart. She, she is, and, and, you know, Lorraine is probably one of the sweetest people I'll ever meet, and, and she's just fantastic, and I, I just adore her. 
She's got lots of fans all over the place, and I'm one of them. (laughs) There you go. Well, you guys have a great night. You can find more information on Jeremy at PositivelySpeaking.com, more information on the show and myself at PositiveIM.com, and they're all linked together somewhere in the middle. So have a great night. Jeremy, I'll see you in a few weeks. Absolutely. All right. Have a good week, everybody. Have a good night.